This is Macro Horizons, episode B-52s, The Bond Shack, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts on the trading desk for the upcoming week of January 21st. And if you missed the title reference, got me a deficit, it's as big as a whale, and it's about to set sail. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. So we have a bunch of top tier economic data, a new treasury, and still the range? Really? The range is strong in this one, Ben. There's no question about it. We have been holding such a definable range that it is almost comic. We are effectively between 170 and 190 in 10s. The curve has been oscillating around 25 basis points in 2s, 10s. And we saw relatively strong retail sales, a little disappointment on the inflation front, but that has become a mainstay for this market. The announcement of a 20-year treasury, while very interesting and compelling in in certain circles, as it will be a natural fit for the classic bond contract, really did very little to recast the macro narrative. It also provided a limited steepening impetus. A conversation about what didn't happen in the treasury market really isn't that interesting. However, there are instances like the current one where the price action itself and the fact that we're largely ignoring the macro influences is telling. Now, it's not necessarily informative as to which direction the market will break, but it is very consistent with a period of a sideways shuffle into the Fed. We get some type of breakout after the event. Whether that ends up being bearish or bullish is going to be dictated by a few things, not least of which being developments on the geopolitical front. Such events are notoriously difficult to time and predict, and so this leaves treasuries in the uncomfortable position of simply responding to headlines. We've continued to watch the equity markets push to record highs. As this is happening, it's important to keep in mind that part of the impressive valuations on the equity side are a function of the fact that rates are as low as they are, the Fed is as accommodative as it has been, and with the Fed on hold for the foreseeable future, the market is comfortable with the notion that the Fed won't be hiking rates anytime soon. Although, to be clear, our baseline assumption remains that the next move is going to be a cut, and it's just a matter of timing. We're comfortable with the idea of dismissing some of the economic data because of calendar and weather quirks, and to some extent that's probably what the market is doing. 
for example, retail sales, because of the timing of Thanksgiving, we saw weakness in November and strength in December. That was certainly unknown. And also the housing data and industrial production were both influenced heavily by the weather. An unseasonably warm December meant that housing starts were brought forward and the lack of utility usage weighed on the IP figures. Well, none of this amounts to a decidedly strong trading bias for the next several days. We continue to expect the bearish seasonals to unfold over the course of the next several weeks. This puts upward pressure on rates, also consistent with continued risk asset performance. And we'll be watching the curve for any signs of an attempt to break out steeper towards that 36 basis point top in two stands. So... New year, new fears? Sure seems that way, Ben. There was a lot of emphasis put on the geopolitical situation at the beginning of January. Some of that has faded, although I'll make the argument that that's a primary reason that we haven't seen 10-year yields above 2%, at least not yet. Part of our core thesis for 2020 continues to be that we have upward pressure on the rates complex in the first quarter, quarter and a half of the year, ultimately resolving in defining the upper end of the range and a drift lower in rates as the realities of the economic data become more evident. I was also impressed to see how well the consumer was able to perform into the end of 2019 with the December retail sales control group print coming in better than expected. Now, it's always going to be a bit stronger versus November, given the timing of Thanksgiving. And this notion was further confirmed with a downward revision to November, which now stands at negative one-tenth versus the plus a half a percent that we saw in December. The level of consumption isn't especially informative for the beginning of the year, however, because it was good, not great. Within the details, we saw a very strong surge in year-over-year online sales, up 24.1%. This is very consistent with the super cycle playing out in U.S. consumption, more online, less brick-and-mortar spending. Not a new story, but one that remains relevant. All of this leads us to the obvious question. With 10-year yields squarely between 170 and 190, what's the next break? And what direction will we break? And more importantly, what will be the impetus? And if the first couple weeks of this month have taught us anything, that really is the operative question. I mean, we had the most relevant data in the form of NFP, CPI, and retail sales, that all carried range-breaking potential, but it seems at this point the market's content to look through the economic data. And arguably it was range-breaking on the downside or bullish for treasuries. And so the fact that we didn't see a test of that 170 level, I believe speaks to the underlying bearishness that we should expect to continue throughout the first quarter. Now, part of that is simply a function of with the new year comes renewed optimism that the economic cycle is going to be extended. We have the Fed on hold, which in and of itself can be interpreted as a vote of confidence for the state of the economy and the prospects throughout the year. And let us not forget, we did get a phase one deal with China signed. Now, my interpretation of a phase one deal in January with tariffs anticipated to be in place through the election is clearly the White House doesn't 
expect to get a phase two deal in place before the election. That doesn't mean that they don't want to, although as cynical as we are here on team strategy, the notion that the White House will use the phase two potential deal with China as a campaign platform certainly resonates. Not to mention people's record high 409Ks. Going to be huge. I think all of that's right. And in conversations with clients so far this year, the expectation of a period of bearishness seems somewhat accepted. This makes sense given the lagged impact of monetary policy, the bout of optimism, the signed trade deal, what have you. What I expect to happen is if and when 10-year yields break 2%, there's going to be a wall of money that's trying to time that dip. And the conversation is very quickly going to move to, do we buy at 2%? Do we try to wait until 225? Do we risk it possibly getting to 250? But that creates an implicit bias that's going to make it very, very hard for rates to back up, especially back up quickly, because in response to any selling, you're going to see some people buying. We've even seen an element of that already play out year to date. Whenever you see a pickup in rates, eventually you see a partial retracement there. I think the mentality at this point is people are hoping, even if backed by fundamentals, but people are hoping to see a pickup in rates, but it's not a long-term pickup. It's just a better opportunity to get executed and allocating positions. And that's certainly consistent with the time of the year, people putting money to work. Investors will be willing to sit on their hands for a few weeks, but if this bout of bearishness doesn't come to fruition, I think we'll see people piling into the market for allocation reasons, if nothing else. The other observation that I would offer here is, yes, it's going to be hard to break 2% because of dip buying interest, but only really on the first try. So if rates back up, you see some buying interest between 195 and 199, let's call it, depending on how long we're able to maintain elevated yield levels will dictate the probability that we break another 10, 15 basis points higher. One observation that a particularly astute client made recently was given where boomed yields are and where JGB yields are, versus where they were, say, two or three months ago, wouldn't we expect there to be more upward pressure on treasury rates? The short answer, yes. And I think that this speaks to our implicit surprise that we haven't seen a bigger backup thus far. The flip side, and this is a point, John, that you have made in the past and remains very relevant, is treasuries often function as a de facto insurance product. When things go bad in terms of risk assets or a flight to quality, you want to have a reasonable amount of duration exposure. And if for no other reason, the combination of size and liquidity of the treasury market will always make it as the go-to flight to quality instrument. I'd also say that the spread compression we've seen between treasuries and boons fits well in the broader macro narrative. It's crazy to think that 2016 was now four years ago, but if we go back towards 2016, we had this moment or several quarter impetus of an expectation of U.S. outperformance economically against the world, the Trump trade, if you will. That was both priced in but has also now been priced out as the realities of the tax cut not creating sustainable 4% growth. 
come back into fruition. So the conversation has now moved to Japanification risk, to the U.S. facing similar, albeit less scary, versions of secular stagnation as compared to Japan and Germany. But in a world where that U.S. outperformance argument is getting weaker and weaker, it should follow intuitively that spread compression follows suit. And this is to say nothing of the fact that over the past several years, we had a Fed go from a hiking bias to having to execute a series of cuts, while the ECB has been largely flat. In that kind of framework, it makes sense to see the spread between treasury yields and foreign alternatives compress. That logic certainly does resonate, but what surprised me is that this has occurred with the European government bond market actually seeing a net increase in rates rather than simply the treasury market rallying to get in line with lower domestic growth expectations. Again, the primary root of the change in sentiment has more to do with an increase in economic optimism, both domestically and abroad, than anything else. That being said, spread compression as volatility comes out of the market, a relatively flat curve persists, all makes sense with where we are in the broader cycle. The point's been made that Boons have had a relatively eventful last four years, and a quick glance at current levels show 10-year government Boond yields at negative 20 basis points. And even at negative 20, that's still substantially off the troughs we saw just a couple months ago. And this isn't to say that I have any expectation of treasury yields and boon yields compressing to be flat in that spread. At current levels, we're still talking about a 200 basis point difference. It's just come in substantially from that 250, 275, 300 basis point level that we saw somewhat recently. And circling back to that discussion about sort of the Trump trade of 2016, even though there have only been a few weeks in 2020, the election is quickly becoming one of the most frequently discussed topics. What election? It's not important. But as primary season gets underway and there is the debate of the more progressive camp and call it Warren and Sanders and the more moderates, whether that be Biden, Buttigieg, or maybe even Michael Bloomberg. And while the Democratic nomination process might offer some tradable information, whether that be in the traditional sense of varying degrees of risk off, depending on who ends up getting the nod, what will be interesting in November is the fact that it's extremely unlikely we see a similar reaction to 2016. After all, John, as you say, the Trump trade, tax cuts, the reflationary ambitions that we saw four years ago have been priced in and priced out. So it's unlikely that we'll see a reaction of a similar magnitude, just given that it's likely we've already seen the lion's share of any economically stimulative reforms. More to the point, if we simply look at the market's propensity to trade the party rather than the individual, a Democrat in the White House would be presumed to be less business friendly than a Republican. I'll make the argument that that will be 90% of the knee-jerk trade. So the assumption being that an even more progressive Democrat would simply exaggerate that trade. I think that's right for the knee-jerk. What'll be really interesting to watch, frankly, it's way too early to tell. As we get closer and closer, what does the congressional breakdown look like as well? The probability of specific policies being passed will slowly build their way into valuations, 
But a lot of these policy proposals need congressional approval. So the question is, who sits in the White House and what's going to happen with Congress? That's really, really hard to price ahead of time. And I agree 100% the knee jerk will follow the party. The question is how it plays out past that will have some nuance. But at this point, that level of nuance is incredibly hard to predict, if at all possible. Shifting gears just slightly, John, what happened over year-end in the funding market? Did we get the big dislocation that everyone was anticipating? Well, the much-feared repocalypse certainly did not happen. If we looked at market pricing several weeks before December 31st, the turn was priced at a spike of something like 200 basis points. Instead, it was closer to one basis point. What this really emphasizes is a few things. One, the Fed's capacity to inject reserves and calm volatility is quite powerful, and they're willing to use it. The second, and this will be interesting to be on the lookout for in coming weeks, is one of the big questions going in is, what were the GSIBs going to do? How close were they to some of their binding thresholds? In essence, did they have free cash to lend and repo? It certainly seems that given the lack of volatility, there was the capacity to extend some of the balance sheet, to extend some cash to those who need it. The third and final thing I'd point out is almost more of a behavioral economic story. When everybody's really concerned about a multi-standard deviation event, it makes it much, much, much less likely to occur. Now, upward pressure was always going to happen. Frankly, I thought it would be larger than one basis point due to the structural regulatory factors. But the market was able to get ahead of itself, to get pre-funded, and at the end of the day, it kind of was a non-event. Going forward, though, we're going to still see a large Fed footprint in the market. They're going to continue to be in repo in some form, offering billions and billions of dollars while they're still buying $60 billion a month in treasury bills. The way we see this process going forward is as they buy treasury bills, that should partly offset the demand for repo. In essence, if they're buying $60 billion a month from the primary dealers, the JP Morgans of the world, the big money center banks, well, that's at first pass $60 billion less in reserves they need to get from the Fed. Now, we don't think it's one-to-one because -one of a collateral mismatch, but the general story is that the Fed has a framework with which to calm and manage the front end. It's just kind of a question of, do they want to have that large of a footprint? At this point, they don't have a decision. They have to have this large of a footprint, but this is going to be a defining story in the front end pretty much for the rest of the year. So just to summarize the takeaway from the year in turn is that there's no apocalypse now. I love the smell of repo in the morning. Smells like sofer. Oh, John, was that you? In the week ahead, there's remarkably little economic data for the treasury market to absorb, very little supply outside of the 10-year tips auction, which 10-year tips as a influence for broader nominal yields tends to be relatively muted. It is notable there's no economic data on Friday the 24th, and the market will be on a holiday Monday, January 20th. So in effect, three trading days, very little economic data, this will leave the market vulnerable to headlines as it relates to the geopolitical situation or even the domestic political environment, because there are certainly a few historic events playing out in D.C. at the moment. 
Looking forward, a lot of focus will be given to this month's FOMC meeting. Our expectations aren't for anything dramatic. The Fed is not going to cut rates. They're not going to hike rates outside of the potential for an upward adjustment, a fine-tuning tweak to IOER. What will be more compelling is how the committee chooses to frame the economic outlook. We have a phase one deal between the U.S. and China. We have seen reasonable economic data, certainly on the employment front. Good, not great, but the unemployment rate remains low. There are a few concerning nuances, particularly when we think about average hourly earnings. And when we adjust that back into real terms, it's even more of an eyebrow raiser. Nonetheless, we struggle to imagine that the Fed is going to do anything other than present the economic outlook as having improved. Some of the global uncertainties have been removed. And as we look forward, a return to a reliance on the classic economic data, while might only occur episodically, will characterize part of the trading environment in the first half of the year. From a technical perspective, we have a bit of a divergence playing out at the moment. The shape of the curve has pushed momentum measures well into oversold or over flat territory, while in outright yield levels, stochastics are still solidly in the middle of the range with no definable bias, either bullish or bearish, in either direction. This does two things. One is it suggests that 10-year yields at 185 represent an equilibrium of sorts. The other thing that it does is it allows for a relatively sharp response in price terms to any incremental piece of information without breaking the range. It will take more to get beyond 190 or below 170 in terms of fundamental or political triggers. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And while we were hoping that the Academy would keep pace with the times and introduce a category for snarky rates market podcasts, alas, I guess that our Oscar will have to wait one more year. Who's Oscar? He's the little green guy in the garbage can. The puppet? Can you tell me how to get, how to get to Treasury Street? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting 
taking any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.